According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, turning in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. This morning is Isaiah chapter 15. Isaiah chapter 15. Oh, and look at that. It's only nine verses. We'll do well. We have two chapters worth, 15 and 16, both dealing with Moab. Moab. Just kind of interesting, and we'll uh, do a little bit of geography and historical work. Not as much, perhaps, as we would like to do. Given the uh, format of this class, we will do what we can with what we have. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in a night, R of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Kerr of Moab is devastated and ruined. So it's not a happy message. This is a, an oracle. It is a message of woe. And uh, Moab has judgment on the way, as this chapter and the next are going to make very clear. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to humble us under the authority of his word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that it is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that it's God-breathed and profitable for reproof, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness. And Father, I pray for humility today to receive the word implanted. Father, this is a passage of scripture that perhaps some would be of the opinion that is no big deal, or we could just blow it off. Father, uh, just because you gave a warning to the Moabites 2,000 years ago, why, why would we pay attention to that? And yet, Father, there are warnings in this chapter we better pay attention to. We better pay much closer attention to. I pray that we would have an understanding of your truth in every application, not only for the Moabites all those years ago, but for us today. And Father, that we might live a life that glorifies your Son. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. First of all, who is Moab? Who is Moab? Moab is the firstborn son of Lot's firstborn daughter. And if you really want the ugly story on this, it'll be uh, Genesis for you in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. But he's introduced here, the nation of Moab that descended from the person Moab uh, is a thorn in Israel's side from the very beginning. Is a thorn in their side while they're in between, uh, after the Exodus, when they're in between Egypt and the Promised Land, they went through Moab. And in part of their wilderness journeys, they went through Moab. And they had struggles in, the, in those wilderness journeys because of the women of Moab. And we'll be talking about that here uh, this morning. And so Moab is going to become uh, the recipient of this oracle message, this judgment message, in both chapter 15 and chapter 16. So we got two weeks to deal with this. Remember, we are in a week-by-week, chapter-by-chapter survey of the book of Isaiah. You're not getting any depth in this, in this hour, all right? We're getting big picture, the breadth of Scripture as far as Isaiah is concerned. Um, prepared a map for us to look at, and if you're like me, you like pictures, you can stare at maps for hours on end. And um, if it may not be as visible to the, uh, to the back row commandos that we have around... Um, 
two maps, essentially the same territory in both places. The United Kingdom is on the left. This is after, uh, after the uh, kingdom was divided, after the death of Solomon, when ten tribes went to the north and became known as the independent kingdom of Israel. And so this is this, this northern kingdom of Israel right here. Judah is the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, their enemies on every side. And as we saw last week, the first of the ten oracles here in the book of Isaiah deals with the Philistines. In the last part of chapter 14, we ran out of time and didn't spend a lot of time on it, but verses 29 through 32 of chapter 14 was the oracle on Philistia. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because of the rod that struck you is broken. And so that was the conclusion of chapter 14, was dealing with Philistia. Now chapters 15 and 16 over here are going to deal with Moab. Moab is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, opposite Israel there to the east. Uh, Moab was larger during some eras of its history and smaller during other eras of its history. It was conquered and brought low by King David and forced into its smallest territory ever and paid tribute to David. They paid tribute to Solomon. They They would continue to pay tribute to the northern kingdom rather than the southern kingdom, interestingly enough. Even though it was the house of David that subjugated them, they paid tribute to the northern kingdom, at least until the death of Ahab, and then they, uh, they broke free. On the right, we have um, what happens after the northern kingdom goes away. Remember, the Assyrians came in and swept away the ten northern tribes, many of whom fled to the southern tribe of Judah, and, and they existed there as where they were preserved as a, as a remnant. But many were carried off by Assyria into captivity. And the Assyrians, what they would do is they would conquer people and move them everywhere. And so after they conquered Israel and moved them out, they brought in a bunch of Samaritans, and they brought in a bunch of other Gentile peoples. And so they started to populate these other regions, such as Samaria and Megiddo and Gilead and Carnaim. All of those were regions that had been depopulated and then repopulated with transplants, thanks to the the Assyrian conquest. You'll note, though, that Moab got a little bit larger after the Assyrians came through. On the right, Moab got a little bit larger as they got some of their territory back, and also Moab's sister nation, Ammon, they got a little bit larger too. The Moabites and the Ammonites being both uh, descendants of Lot through his two, through his two daughters. All right. You can hold your finger there at uh, Isaiah 15 and we'll uh, read briefly the background on this. Genesis chapter uh, 19. And it's, uh, it's an ugly story, I'll just tell you now. In Genesis chapter 19, After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot and his family had been residing, they escaped. God sent a couple of angels, and they went into Sodom, and they got Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of Sodom, rescued them before the destruction of the city. And then on the way out, of course, if you remember this story, uh, they were told not to look back. Lot's wife looked back, Mrs. Lot. She looked back and uh, immediately was killed, was, was turned into the pillar of salt. And so uh, it's just Lot and his two daughters then that escape and come to uh, Zoar. And uh, in Genesis 20, or 19, verse 30, Lot went up from Zoar, stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. And Zoar, by the way, is going to come back. We're going to have references to Zoar in Isaiah, chapter 15 and chapter 16, and some of the studies coming up. And uh, with his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. And then the firstborn said to the younger... Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, get him drunk, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. All right, now you know why this is such an ugly chapter. 
And so uh, they did. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And on the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us, uh, tonight's your turn. And so uh, in these verses 34 and following then, they go through the process again. And so the younger daughter the second time. So in verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name um, from my father, <laughs> Moab. All right. And uh, the may prefix in the, uh, is of or from and ob from father. It's a, <clears throat> the Moabite language is a cognate language, a Western, Northwestern Semitic language like Hebrew. And uh, Moab means uh, I had a baby with my father. And this is the firstborn, and this is the one that uh, is addressed in these chapters, in Isaiah chapter 15, Isaiah chapter 16. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites, uh, the sons of Ammon, to this day. And that was the, uh, the neighboring kingdom that I showed you on that map just a moment ago. Now, this oracle, what we're studying today... You're going to get just a brief overview of it in our, in our time together. If you want to come back and study it in greater detail, you need to connect it with Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. All right? You need to study this as you study the oracle of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. Isaiah's oracle concerning Moab should be studied in tandem. Remember, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. No passage of Scripture stands by itself. If, you, if you're going to build a doctrine on one verse, you're in trouble. But remember, Scripture agrees with Scripture all the time because God is not a liar. No passage of Scripture can contradict any other passage of Scripture. We will never find ourselves in an either-or conundrum thinking, is this true or is this true? Thinking that one or the other has to be false. Everything God says is true. And so if we have passages that are in parallel, we love that. We love to find the ways that we harmonize them, synthesize them, synchronize them, like the Synoptic Gospels, for example. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we put those together. Nothing contradicts in the Word of God. And so we have the, uh, the oracle in Numbers chapter 24, and I'll hit that on my way back to Isaiah. I realize your, your fingers are still trapped in Isaiah 15. But in Numbers chapter 24, we have a section here in the book of Numbers, verse, chapters 22, 23, 24, it's a section of the book of Numbers that contains the whole uh, uh, interchange between Balaam and Balak. Balak, the king of the Moabites, and the prophet, the for-profit prophet that he hired, uh, Balaam, right? The, uh, the, uh, the, like a gunslinger, right? Prophet for hire. Uh, he'll come and curse anybody for you for a price you know, or bless if you want to pay for a blessing, as it were. And, and uh, you know, holy men find through the years they can uh, be very lucrative in making whatever kind of money they can. And this, uh, this was Balaam's operation. Of course, it didn't work because anybody that Yahweh Elohim blesses cannot be cursed by anybody. And uh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, had blessed Israel. He told Balaam that, that uh, no, you are, are not going to curse these people. At the end of this, or towards the end of this segment, Balaam actually stands and he delivers a powerful oracle in Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. 
His ministry was a total failure because his ministry was trying to curse the Jewish people. But he was a real prophet. He was a Gentile prophet who knew Yahweh Elohim, who knew El Elyon, who knew um, uh, El Shaddai, the Almighty. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel. This is a Christmas message. You didn't even realize you're going to get a Christmas message uh, from Isaiah 15, did you? Well, as soon as we bring Numbers 24 into it, you got your own Christmas message right here. Who do you think, what do you think the star is about? What do you think the scepter is about? But, the, but Jesus and his, his uh, purpose in serving the Father. So a star shall come forth from Jacob. That's the star the wise men were following at the birth of our Savior. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Second advent of Jesus Christ. The star is first advent. The scepter is second advent. If you ever study these things through. And with that scepter, he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Heth or Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, will also be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. All right, so there's the oracle of Balaam. There's his discourse. He has other discourses that follow that against Amalek and the Kenite and so forth. But for our purposes, for what relates to Isaiah 15, we have Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 through 19. And you want to study them in that, in that connection. When the king of Moab and his four prophet prophet failed to curse Israel, it was the women of Moab who succeeded in bringing God's judgment upon them. All right? It was the women of Moab. The men blew it. The men tried and failed. Okay? From the king and his four prophet prophet. So if, if one plan doesn't work, what does Satan do? Does he just give up and go home? And No, he doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He never quits. He never gives up. If one plan doesn't work, he switches to another plan. He switches to another plan. He's, he is dedicated to bringing about our destruction, to bringing about our fall. So when the king of Moab and his four prophet prophet failed to, to curse Israel, that's Numbers 22 through 24, it was the women of Moab who succeeded in bringing God's judgment upon them. And actually what we learn later is that they did this based on Balaam's recommendation. Even though he had prophesied of Israel's blessing, he still wanted the paycheck that Balak was offering. He wanted to find a way to collect that treasure, even if it meant um, defying God Almighty, defying El Shaddai, defying uh, El Elyon, and defying all the the different titles that we have for God here in in these passages. And so um, we, we read about this in the next chapter, in chapter 25, of, of the book of Numbers. Um, while Israel remained at, at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. All right? He could not curse them. But if they fall into idolatry, if they fall into fornication and, and spiritual adultery, then Balaam won't have to curse them. All right? God himself will discipline his own people. And that's, that's even better. That's like a twofer. That lets them fail and lets them fail by God's own hand. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And oh, if you do the study on it, Chemosh, the hateful, detestable god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites, they offered, it was unrestrained sex, it was child sacrifice, it was the, 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 uh, the abortion industry of their day and the massacre of the children and everything going on. And Israel took part. 
And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The raisin cakes we're going to see and all the other aphrodisiacs and all the other uh, uh, intoxicants where you can just get stoned out of your ever-loving gourd and uh, claim like, well, not my fault. I don't remember this. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. So you see why it is that Balaam doesn't have to curse them anymore. Because of the women of Moab, because of their seductions, because of the, uh, the idolatry that the men of Israel fell for. See, men are stupid. Now, you know, that's just, when it comes right down to it, okay, and the, the feminine uh, attraction being what it is, it's a pretty, uh, pretty simple thing for Satan to employ. All right. So the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. Wow. All the leaders, the prince of Judah, the prince of Benjamin, the prince of Dan, all the tribal leaders, the clan leaders. There are 70 leaders of Israel and God's going to execute all of them because they failed to stop the idolatry of their tribes, of their clans, of their families. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Did, did, you got a family member that took part in this? They need to die. Wow, you talk about a, a faith test for the other ones. All right. So behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. So now they're branching out beyond the Moabite women. They're adding Midianites to the mix. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping in the doorway of the tent of meeting. You see this? God has already said, you're guilty for what you're doing. And here's this man, uh, Cosby. Uh, we learned his name in another passage. Anyway, um, <clears throat> talk about defiant. Even while the sentence has been handed down, he's not going to quit fornicating. He's going to go and do it in the tent of meeting. In the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation, in the sight of the sons of Israel. I mean, how bold is that? So I mean, it's one thing to, you know, fornicate on a Saturday night or whatever, but you're going to come into a church on Sunday morning and do it right here in front of everybody? That's, that's pretty bold. That's what we see happening here. And then my hero, my buddy Phineas, I love this guy. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, so you know who he is? He's the grandson of the first high priest, the firstborn son of the second high priest. He himself will become high priest in, in his generation. He is the third in line of the, of the lineage of Aaron. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. See, one spear through two fornicators, and there it is. Okay? They were kind enough to leave themselves so vulnerable. Got them both with one stroke of the spear. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. But it stopped when he pierced it through. All right, well, there it is. The women of Moab succeeded in bringing God's judgment upon them. And they became proverbial. The women of Moab became so proverbial in the ancient world to be called a Moabitess meant you were, uh, you know, a tramp, a loose woman, a woman of, of questionable, or not, no, not even questionable, a woman of no uh, morals of any sort. All right? And yet... We have one very significant Moabitess who became a believer, who left an entire lifestyle, who departed from everything of her culture and her upbringing and her, her uh, background. One significant Moabitess became a believer and contributed to the blessing of, of Israel. That's the book of Ruth. 
All right, the book of Ruth. She said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she attached herself to, to Naomi. She marries Boaz. We It's a very happy ending at the end of the book of Ruth. And we find out that she's the great-grandmother of King David. All right, she, becomes the, uh, she marries Boaz, becomes the mother of Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. She's in the line of Christ. There is a Moabitess woman in the line of Christ. The seed of the woman promise passed through a Moabitess in the process of revealing the Savior to mankind. I, I love that. To me, that's a, that's a glorious testimony in so many different ways. In our interest of time, I will not take a look at the book of Ruth. But you can read that on your own, and if you don't already know the uh, particular story. Moab was subjugated by King David, but revolted against Jehoram. Moab was subjugated by King David, but revolted against Jehoram. And, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there is good value in reading Second Samuel chapter 8 as background to Isaiah 15, and you'll see why. In Second Samuel chapter 8, as God is putting the finishing touches on David's triumphs, it includes um, many of these groups that we're looking at in Isaiah. It includes the Philistines, it includes the Moabites, it includes the groups that we have coming up in, uh, in these chapters in Isaiah 15, 16, 17, 18. We've got a whole lot more uh, of Gentile geography coming up in the coming weeks. And so uh, we have the Arameans in verses uh, 1 through 8. And then, uh, but in verse 2 it says, He defeated Moab and measured them with the line. This is King David, all right? Verse 1 says, Now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And this seems kind of rough, but this is what he was told to do. Measured two lines to put to death and one line to keep alive. This was his conquest of the Moabites and two-thirds of the nation was executed in David's victory. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Bringing tribute. They became a, a servant nation to the nation of Israel. Some other background there as well. We've got uh, the, the Arameans you've got, of Damascus. We've got uh, in Isaiah coming up an oracle against Damascus. Uh, we've got Toy, the king of Hamath. Anyway, there's uh, an Edom. There's, there's a lot of good parallels here. The reason you may want to be paying more attention to 2 Samuel chapter 8 as, uh, as we proceed through these Gentile portions of the book of Isaiah. Finally, they were able to revolt during, uh, against Jehoram after the death of King Ahab. 2 Kings 3 takes us into this. 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> It says, uh, now Misha, why is that important? Now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That was his annual tribute. But when Ahab died, remember Ahab and Jezebel? When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. He even tried to get Jehoshaphat on board, the king of Judah, to join with him in this, to say the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Well, shouldn't be serving you anyway. He was subjugated by the house of David. Should have been serving the southern kingdom. Forget the northern kingdom. 
Anyway, we have the, uh, the rebellion there. If you want additional passages of study, I can recommend for you Amos, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. There are other Hebrew prophets that are going to address Moab. Moab is a significant neighbor to Israel. Gentiles, yes, but they have a kinship with Israel. Why is that? Because Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And so as nations descended from Lot, Ammon and Moab are cousins to Israel because Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Israel, of course, is descended from Abraham. We're going to talk about why they have a future. Why does Moab have a future? In in spite of all the judgment we're going to read about here in this chapter today and chapter 16 next week, they're coming under unbelievable judgment by the Lord. You thought lying down in three lines and having two lines executed was pretty rough? Okay. You know what Jesus is going to do at second advent? It's going to be worse than that. Tribulation will be worse than that. But a remnant will be preserved. A remnant is preserved because the Moabites and the Ammonites are kin to Abraham. And Abraham subdivided his land grant. Abraham, having received the promise from the Lord, distributed a blessing to Lot in his choice of the land. And we're going to talk about why Ammon and Moab have an eternal future in the millennial kingdom. They didn't deserve it. Didn't earn it. But in God's grace, they have it for all eternity. So we'll talk about that coming up. Anyway, the book of Amos, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the whole chapter of Jeremiah 48, which we could get into today, but... You know, we'll save it for our Jeremiah series. Remember, we're going to wrap up 66 chapters of Isaiah, believe it or not, one chapter per Sunday, and then, uh, then we got 52 chapters of Jeremiah that's going to follow right on the heels. Okay? And so, about two years from now, we should be in Jeremiah 48. And I expect you're going to remember everything you're learning today related to the, uh, the Moabites. Let's get back to Isaiah 15, though. Let's pay attention. Because there are very specific, proper names that are delineated in this oracle. It jumps out of the page at you. Almost slaps you silly because there's so many of them. Specific, proper names are delineated in this oracle. I even went so far as to color code them in, uh, in my Bible software. just because there were so many. So I drew green lines underneath every proper name. Made myself a little visual filter and said, show me. Every time in the Hebrew we have a proper noun. And just added the little green lines underneath there. They kind of jump out at you anyway because of the capital letters as proper names. Okay, Moab, Ar, Moab, Ker, Moab, Debon. Moab, Nebo, Mediba. It jumps out at you in this, uh, in this text. Specific proper names are delineated in this oracle. Let's take a look at them. It says uh, we have Ar and Ker, the two leading cities, and they're the first ones to get zapped. Surely in a night, it doesn't take long, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Ker of Moab is devastated and ruined. They had kind of a northern capital, southern capital. They had two leading cities. They're both going to be gone the same night. They have, uh, you know, the idea that if you have two kind of co-capitals, you have two leading cities, then you can kind of defend each of them or defend both of them. You can, uh, you have, uh, you have mutual defense, whereby if one's attacked, the other can come to their aid, kind of a thing. 
Moab was pretty proud of their defensibility. They had some fortresses. They had like the Petra fortress, for example. They had places of, of refuge that they could flee to. Um, some of them they shared with the Edomites and whatnot, but in any event. So here's these proper names. There's R, that's A-R. There's Kerr, K-I-R. There's Debon. There's uh, Nebo, which is both a mountain and a city. There's Mediba. Um, and they just keep jumping out at you. Heshbon, Elialiah, Jahaz. Okay? Now, some of these, by the way, we don't know. They, they're lost to history. We have guesses. We, uh, we think we've identified certain archaeological sites as being, you know, ancient Debon and, uh, and so forth. There's a question whether Debon and Demon are the same. At the end of the chapter, in verse 9, you've got the wailers of, of Demon or Diamond. We've got uh, woes that are brought upon Diamond. And uh, some of the manuscripts are uh, a little bit questionable whether that's a, a, a gloss for if diamond and diamond should be the same. Anyway, a lot of guesswork in this chapter. What's the point? 17 specific locations are addressed. 17 specific locations are addressed. And there they are. Write them down if you want or don't if you don't care. But here's the point. God is comprehensive and thorough in all that he does. I guess I'll leave that up there. 17 specific locations are addressed. He gives a comprehensive notice. All right? God is not like uh, the, you know, some goofy oracle of Delphi or some uh, predictions of Nostradamus or some kind of charlatan that has all these vague kind of... uh, loosey-goosey, could-be-anything kind of meaningless prophecies that later on we look back to with hindsight and say, oh, he was talking about Adolf Hitler and whatever. And, and when they, people find specificity in Nostradamus because it's easy to do when you're as vague as he was. God is not vague. God is very precise, very specific, naming 17 geographical locations all within the heartland of ancient Moab. If you were a Moabite reading this, or if you were a Moabite hearing the prophet Isaiah speak to this, that would get your attention. Because you would realize he's named everywhere there is to name. <laughs> there's, there's no place left to run and, and still you know, be within the boundaries of, of uh, Moab. In fact, a couple of them technically crossed the line into Edom, into some of the regions they kind of shared together, some of the refuge fortresses they shared together. So we understand that the coming devastation and ruin will be comprehensive. No city, town, or village will escape, although they try everything for their rescue. No city, town, or village will escape. Some of these they named are the big capital cities. Others are some pretty obscure little mountain villages. Doesn't matter. You're not going to escape. See, this is, this is, uh, this is what we were just about reading. When, when Lot escaped from... from uh, uh, Sodom, he was trying to find refuge in Zoar. He's trying to find refuge in a cave outside of Zoar. This is the kind of territory in this part of the world that's good for bandits. <laughs> it's good for hideouts and, and uh, surviving certain things. Same thing is going to happen in the tribulation. They're going to crawl into holes of the ground and bring the mountains down on top of themselves and, and try to hide from the return of Jesus Christ at Armageddon. It won't work. But it's in this very land of Moab that they're going to try it. In the very land of Edom that they're going to try it. And the Lord of hosts is going to come marching through Basra with his robes dipped in blood. 
because none of their hiding places are going to work. No city, town, or village will escape, though they try everything for their rescue. What do they try? Well, they try, first of all, they try religion. In verses 2 and 3, they've gone up to the temple to Dibon or Dibon, even to the high places to weep. What's on the high places? This is their religion. This is their altar. This is where their sacred groves are. This is where they fornicate. This is where they, okay, they, they, they placate the fertility goddesses. All right. They have a ritual with fertility priestesses to try to placate the fertility goddesses. And all it is is, is just uh, religious sex is all it is, okay? Disguised as some kind of a ritual. And, uh, and of course, like I say, men are stupid. They'll go for a religion like that. <laughs> you know, wow. Um, they go up to the high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Everyone's head is bald. Every beard is cut off. These uh, were the signs of, of contrition, the signs of, of penance, the signs of uh, uh, the visible signs of, of shame that you would prove to your, to your God or to your goddess that you are humble before them. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. You put on the uncomfortable uh, 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 clothing that demonstrates your humility. That's what sackcloth is all about. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolving in tears. Let's just have a global show of how sorry we are. (laughs) And if we can act as pathetic as possible, then maybe our gods will have mercy on us. Okay? It's not going to work. It's not going to work. The military isn't going to deliver them either. You know, you can try everything you want for rescue. All the resources that are available to the hands of man, you cannot escape the hand of God. It's just not going to happen. And so in verses 4 and 5, Heshbon and Aliyah, Eli, Eli, all right, this is terrible. If I had Glenn here this morning, he could pronounce this in the original Moabite. Um, these guys cry out. These are more cities, okay? More towns. Uh, these are on trade routes, actually. Uh, not only uh, significant for commerce and trade, but also uh, choke points. In, uh, in, uh, if you're in a kind of a wilderness land and you control the oasis, you control the wells, that's a good place to control. Then you can sit there with your troops drinking water while the enemy troops come attacking you through the desert. And Anyway, their voice is heard in all the way to Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry out. His soul trembles within him. Soldiers are no use. They're terrified. When, when a soldier's soul is crying out, trembling... If, if the soul is trembling, what's the body going to do on the battlefield? He's already lost his heart for the battle. Interesting testimony with respect to Isaiah. Isaiah says, my heart cries out for Moab. My heart. This is Isaiah speaking. Isaiah wasn't having any fun to preaching this message. I believe the reference to my heart is Isaiah's heart. I realize uh, the through the Bible notes have it as the Lord's heart. Um. I think it's better to view this as Isaiah's heart, okay? My heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as a Zoar. There's a Zoar. And Eglath Shelahil. Yeah. For they go up. Eglath is the heifer of Shelashiah. Okay. For they go up the ascent of Luhith weeping. Surely on the road to Horonayim, they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. There is no rescue. Everywhere they try to rendezvous for military rescue, there is no rescue. 
Religion isn't going to save them. The military isn't going to save them. Their money won't save them. Wealth won't save them. How many Christians do you know are worshiping the almighty dollar? Okay, Which isn't so almighty these days. Which is rather inflated. Which is rather devalued. Which is rather... Um, what a pathetic God. Okay, And yet... Tradition back as old as nations themselves, if you cannot withstand a siege, maybe you can bribe your besiegers to go away. You submit, you pay tribute, you surrender, and when you surrender financially it hurts, but it's better than dying, at least you're still alive. And all the wealth, which mainly they stole anyway, being a bandit kingdom, (laughs) and uh, different trade routes and whatnot, but uh, Moab was pretty wealthy. Moab was pretty wealthy. I think they also made some bucks off their uh, women, off the, the, the fertility cult activity. Okay? Uh, but verses 6 and 7, For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. The tender grass died out. There is no green thing. See, if you don't have uh, pastures, what are you going to do with your millions and millions of sheep? What are you going to do with all that wool? Okay, they made bucks on that wool. They were able to pay tribute. Think about what they were really making if they were giving 100,000 sheep to Israel every year and the wool from 100,000 rams every year. They were, they were bringing it in. Now it's gone because they can't feed all those sheep, all those um, rams and goats and whatnot. Verse 7 says, Therefore the abundance with which they acquired and stored up, they carry off over the brook of Arabim. And so they've lost it. And they've lost their wealth, the great wealth. And how are you going to survive without your wealth. So religion doesn't save you. Military doesn't save you. You can't buy your way out of all your problems. What do you got left? What do you got left? Well, you could repent and turn to the God of Israel. Okay? You could actually, as a Gentile nation, forsake the idols that you've been serving, listen to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, find refuge in Him, actually start to bless the Jewish people. You've been cursing them all this time. Why don't you try blessing the Jewish people and see if maybe that helps? And what we're going to find here, um, and actually this is how, I'll give you a a sneak peek preview. Uh, This is how chapter 16 is going to begin. It says, send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah, by the way of the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Forget Mount Nebo. What's Mount Nebo? Mount Nebo, the great Moabite mountain where they did all their fornicating, Mount Nebo is where Moses went up and he saw the land at a distance. Couldn't go into the land, but he saw it and he died. Moab was, bar- uh, Moab was where Moses even was buried. Okay, When God buried Moses, it was in the land of Moab, not in the land of Israel. Moses couldn't enter Israel. But, he, uh, but there, there were advice for survival is turning to the Lord God of Israel, submitting to the Jewish people, because the King of Israel is going to become your king in the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So, preview for, uh, for next week. Final thing, and what I really want to spend the most time on today, is this heart of Isaiah. The heart of Isaiah. This is where I really think the um, application comes to us in the 21st century. The heart of Isaiah cried out for the object of his of this oracle. He says, "My heart cries out." It's going to happen again in chapter sixteen and verse eleven. 
similar language in the very next chapter. He says, Therefore my heart intones like a harp for Moab, my inward feelings for Ker Hereseth. That's the same as the Ker we had in chapter 15. My heart intones. I mean, do you even care? (laughs) You know, if you give the gospel to an unbeliever, do you even care whether they accept it or they reject it? Does it hurt when they don't? You know they're going to hell. Or is it just, oh well, you had your chance, gave it to you. Too bad for you. Sorry you didn't listen. Have my eyes out for you at the great white throne. As if we'll be able to stand there in some kind of finger pointing, told you so, carnal attitude when you know at the great white throne we're already glorified and justified and, 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 and we're already sinless at that point, okay? No, does our heart cry out to the lost? Does it, uh, do, we, do we tremble in, in anguish? Do we weep over our nation that used to fear the Lord that no longer does? Do, we, uh, do any of these messages bother us? Or do we just slough it over our shoulder and go, whew, glad that's not me? Okay? Well, in the body of Christ, it might be you. Because all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. If your brother's out there in a sinful lifestyle, your sister's out there in a sinful lifestyle, defying Scripture, that better hurt, because that's you. That's me. That's all of us. That's the body of Christ. If one member suffers, we all suffer. We need to adopt this attitude that, that uh, Isaiah expresses here. It'll come back again in chapter 21, the same attitude, different different object next time. 15 and 16 is both Moab, but in uh, Isaiah chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, this is the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea as windstorms on the Negev sweep on, comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously. The destroyer still destroys These are terms for Satan, if you're not aware of that. These are terms for the angelic conflict, for the demonic power behind the human tyrants of this earth. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Isaiah was not happy to give her to deliver any of these messages, or many of them. Did not want to give them. I, I believe there's a reason why Jonah didn't get the book of Isaiah to give to the people of Israel. Because <laughs> Jonah didn't have the doctrine Isaiah had. Jonah was uh, selfish. Jonah was... Um, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted them to get theirs. Didn't want to preach. Didn't want them to repent. When they did repent, he pouted about it. Jonah is a, a great example of what not to do. He, he, Jonah would have delivered this oracle against Balaam and just piled it on. This oracle against Moab and just piled it on and loved every minute of it and, and, and wanted it to be even worse. Not Isaiah. Isaiah wept, wept to deliver this message. All right. 
And this should be our heart. The servant of the Lord should have the heart attitude of the Lord. If in anything you have a different attitude, He will also show that to you. If your attitude is not the Lord's attitude, that's a problem. Okay? You're, and you're the one in need of adjustment. God is never going to adjust His attitude to our standards. His is unchanging. His is eternal. His is pure and righteous and holy. This includes His attitude of judgment, His attitude of anger. If we're not hating what He hates, we're wrong. If we're not loving what He loves, we're wrong. And sometimes we love and hate at the same time. Don't fall for it when the devil tells you that hate and love are opposites. Don't fall for that. Hate is love. Okay? As we abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Let love be without hypocrisy. And if the soul of the Lord hates, we should hate because we love the Lord. Now, in our hate, of course, are we desiring their destruction? Are we hating and hating and hating and just waiting for them to get wiped out? Not for a minute. That's why we have Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, 2 Peter 3, 9. The servant of the Lord should have the hard attitude of the Lord. God desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Every judgment message about you are about to be wiped out has built in the recognition that if you repent now, if you humble now, if you turn to the Lord now, perhaps he may relent because he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness that God does not desire for any to perish. So Ezekiel 18 says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? He applies wrath. He has to apply wrath. And he will kill a believer under the sin unto death. There is no question. Ananias and Sapphira, he killed them under the sin unto death. All right? I've known believers that have died the sin unto death. But he doesn't want to do that. Neither should we ask for that. Neither should we hope that if we see somebody going through that, that that's where they end up. Ezekiel 18, 23, he says... You know, he can repent. It says in verse 21, Ezekiel 18, 21, it says, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes, practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. In other words, you can get right with the Lord. You can confess. You can repent. You can start to walk in the truth. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. What happens if we confess our sins? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is he going to hold it over our heads? Is he going to beat us up with guilt and say, ooh, you dirty, no good scoundrel? No, because he's already judged those sins on the cross, on Jesus Christ. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. Same chapter, down to verse 32. See, now notice, verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Okay, now recognize, he's speaking to a covenant people, that is Israel. This is not how you get saved. This is how a covenant people is restored to fellowship. 
We are a covenant people in Christ. We are saved. These principles aren't about getting saved. These principles are about saved people that are walking wrong, that are on the verge of sin unto death. And how do we get right? Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions. What we have in Hebrews, right? Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that's set before us. Make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Therefore, repent and live. Ananias and Sapphira, all they needed to do was confess their lies. All they needed to do was come on us with the Apostle Peter and say, you know what? We lied. We really sold our house for this larger amount and kept some of it. We gave the smaller amount and told you that was all of it because we wanted to impress you. We lied. We lied because we were jealous of Barnabas and what he was, the praise he was getting for the money he brought. And we wanted to get praised. We wanted people to be, think we were super Christians. And so we lied about the money we were giving to the church. We lied about it. Had they been honest, they wouldn't have died the sin unto death. But they lied. And they died the sin unto death that very day, that very moment. Same book, Ezekiel, over to chapter 33, verse 11. It's largely the same as we've already read. Say to them, as I live, as I live, declares the Lord. Isn't that great? God cannot lie. And yet he takes a vow. And then he says, as I live, God cannot die. But when he takes the vow, he attaches it to his very life. As I live, declares the Lord. Right? Nowadays we just say, you know, cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Who does that? It's just a little children's ditty, okay? But cross my heart and hope to die comes from the ancient language. It comes from the concept that we are taking solemn vows before the Lord, so help me God. And if I am lying, the God I called upon should strike me dead. That's how serious these vows to the God of truth are all about. As I live... In other words, if I'm, yeah, no, it's comedy, right? If I'm lying, I'm dying, okay? But the basis of that is this truth. And now here's the God who cannot lie taking a vow and the God who cannot die putting his own life on the record in in tandem with this vow. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Turn back, turn back. This is the call to repentance by by God to his covenant nation. Finally, 2 Peter 3, 9. We quote this a lot. 2 Peter chapter 3 is the chapter that gives me my... uh, call to worship the uh according to his promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells that comes from here comes from second peter chapter three a little bit before that though in verse nine so here's the thing we think god is kind of slow we think god is kind of stupid because if we were god we would already brought the kingdom in by now (laughs) if we were god 
we're sick of all this sin and evil and wickedness and cancer and all this other ugly stuff. We, we wouldn't want my mom to die or any of this stuff, right? We see bad things happening, and if we were God, we wouldn't have any of that. But we're not God. And we don't see how he works all things together for good. And we don't see how patient he is. He's not slow, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For all to come to repentance. This should be our heart attitude as well. The devastation and ruin of Moab have left the Moabite remnant as fugitives hunted by a lion. The language here of verse 9, Isaiah 15, 9. The waters of Daimon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Daimon or Demon. A uh, lion upon the fugitives of Moab, upon the remnant of the land. All they've got left are fugitives and a remnant. Fugitives and a remnant. And yet, what's worse than being a, a remnant fugitive? A remnant fugitive hunted by a lion. <laughs> okay, They're in a bad spot as chapter 15 comes to a close. But thankfully, they have the admonition to send tribute to the ruler of the land. Surrender now to the conquering Messiah. You're worried about this lion here? How about the other lion? Why don't we submit to the lion of the tribe of Judah? See, they're worried about the wrong lion. This metaphor is striking because there's another lion to whom they ought to have fled for refuge. And that's what they're going to be invited to do here in uh, chapter 16. A throne will be established, Isaiah 16, 5, in loving kindness. A judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. There's actually a parallel here in the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 8, or 11, verses 8 through 11. Goodness, do I have time for this? We'll try. Hosea. The first of the 12 minor prophets, Hosea 11. Now, this is not with respect to to Moab, but notice the language. Notice how similar it is. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? This is, Hosea was the prophet to the, the last prophet sent to the northern kingdom right before Assyria took him away. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I believe that's Yahweh there speaking. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. See, even when Assyria takes them captive, he still is merciful. He still preserves a remnant down in the kingdom of Judah. For I am, not, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. His sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Even when the final prophet is prophesying their destruction, even the northern kingdom comes back. Okay, Don't believe all the phony lies and sensational books. The lost tribes of Israel. There aren't any lost tribes. Okay? God knows where they are. God knows who they are. Many of them know who they are. All right. There are no lost tribes. In spite of everything, including their comprehensive devastation and ruin, Moab has a promised restoration and a millennial future. In spite of everything, 
including their comprehensive devastation and ruin, Moab does have a promised restoration and a millennial future. America can be destroyed tomorrow. We have no biblical promises that we will be restored for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Moab has promises. All right? As a gen- this, you, know, you know how unusual this is? For a Gentile nation to have millennial promises? Why would, they, why would a Gentile nation have millennial promises? I already gave it away. Because Lot is the kin, kinsman to Abraham. And because Abraham subdivided his grant, his land grant. Land, seed, and blessing is what God promised Abraham. And Abraham gave Lot his choice of the land. And Ammon and Moab are the heirs to Lot's portion as a gift of Abraham. That's Genesis 13, by the way, if you want to read that story, uh, verses 8 through 13. I'll close with Jeremiah 48. I told you we were going to turn to Jeremiah 48, and I lied to you because here we are. Jeremiah 48 and verse 47. Remember I said there were other Hebrew prophets that addressed Moab, including Amos chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 25 and Jeremiah chapter 48. I said two years from now we're going to be here. Well, we're here. Um, just real quickly, and then I've got to close in prayer. Otherwise, I'll read all 47 verses of this entire chapter, and that would be kind of fun. Um, but notice, uh, you know, they're, they're trying everything they can escape, trying everything to save themselves. Nothing's going to work. Verse 44, uh, you know, terror, verse 43 Terror, pit, and snare are coming upon you, inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. The one who flees from the terror will fall into the pit. Okay, The one who climbs up out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For I shall bring upon her, even upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Now, what do you know about that? I mean, a year, that seems pretty bad, but guess what? It's finite. It will come to an end. There's a season connected with it. It's not eternal. In the shadow of Heshbon, the fugitives stand without strength, for a fire has gone forth from Heshbon, a flame from the midst of Sihon. It has devoured the forehead of Moab. Remember, the scepter is going to smash that forehead. And the scalps of the riotous revelers. Woe to you, Moab, the people of Chemosh. That's that terrible false god. The people of Chemosh have perished, for your sons have been taken away captive, your daughters into captivity. Yet... I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far, the judgment on Moab. All right? Wow. Moab has a future. How in the world does Moab have a future? Well, like I say, kindred to Abraham, the descendants of Lot are blessed. Didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, but neither do I. (laughs) All right? I'm saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the prophet Isaiah. I thank you for a prophecy that uh, speaks really ultimately to tribulational fulfillments. It speaks to second advent and the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Moabites were uh, pretty devastated by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. They kind of faded away. But even as late as the Roman era in the, uh, in the life of our Savior, Father, there were still Edomites like Herod uh, around. There were still Moabites around. They were still an identified uh, people group in, uh, in that part of the world. They have a future, Father, and you will be faithful to them. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we have a future and you are faithful to us because we are the body of Christ, saved by faith in your Son. 
I do thank you, Father, that your son died on the cross in our place. I thank you, Father, that by believing in him, I receive eternal life. An eternal life that can never be lost. Thank you, Father, for the eternal promises based upon the infinite sacrifice of your glorious son. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.